All right, welcome back to the Christian Tactician Podcast. I am your host, Adam Yates. Thank you so much for coming today. Thank you so much for spending a little bit of time with me. Uh, I realize that it's been a little while since I've put out a podcast. Life is is busy, and I also want to make sure that I don't just put out a podcast for the sake of doing it, but that I have something that's on my heart that I feel like is important for uh, all of my listeners to consider. And so with that in mind, I do have a message. I do have a, a topic I want to talk about today. But before I do that, uh, all of you who are my regular listeners, I hope you don't ever get tired of me trying to remind you of these things. You know, I want you to remember that we, we serve a God of purpose. We serve a God who knows what he's doing. He knew how to make you. He created you exactly how he wanted you to be. He put you where he wants you to be, and he put you there so that you could be successful. Our God is not a God who tries to make people fail. Instead, he does these things. He puts you in positions. He, he has people interact with you because he wants to draw you toward him. And a God of purpose, a God who has purpose, he knows how to get you where he wants you to be. He knows how to bring you to salvation. He knows what he's doing, and I want you to have confidence in that. I want you to have confidence in God. I want you, if you feel like you're struggling in your faith, sometimes you're wondering if God hears you or sees you, I want you to remember this, that God knows you. He loves you. He has a plan for you. He created you, and he doesn't do things for no reason. I want you to remember as we talk about manhood, as we talk about being a good Christian, you know, the dogs also bark at what they don't know. Things that we don't understand, we're naturally wary of, we're naturally afraid of. You see, in our society right now, I mean, things are just escalating so quickly where all these definitions of manhood, all these definitions of what sex and gender are, are getting twisted and, and, and redefined and all of that. You know, the fact that you want to be a good Christian, a good Christian man, that is something that this world is offended by. And a whole lot of our world and a whole lot of uh, people in our society, they are affected by all this uh, false falsehood that is sent out there, this fake news, if you will. And, and you begin, when you hear something over and over again, it begins to, uh, you, you can begin to accept it. And so I, I want you to remember this. You know, all sorts of people have ideas, have different ideas about Christians and what Christians think and do and how, what they believe, and, and they're hypocrites and they're all that sort of thing. You know, Christianity following Christ is something that people can be worried about, even angry about, and especially if you want to be a good Christian man, because manhood is something that is called toxic and all of that sort of stuff. Because dogs also bark at what they don't know, what they haven't experienced, what they haven't seen, what they don't know what it is. They're worried about it. They become offended by it. But when you begin to take up this mantle of Jesus Christ, you walk as a Christian, when you do these things, you show something different. You show something different to the world, and you give people something, uh, a new understanding of what a Christian is, of what a Christian man is. And you have the ability to change the course of somebody's life, even if it's only one. And that is an awesome thing. And I want you to be encouraged by that, that the toil and the difficulty that you go through in this life when we suffer as a Christian, it is not for no purpose. And there is not a more noble cause out there. I want you to remember these four aspects of being a man. A man of God, he is a man of action. He does not stand by idle. He is looking. He is looking for where he can have an effect. He is looking to be a, a effect in, in others' lives. He is looking at his own life. What is he struggling with? What are his difficulties? And he's trying to change those things. He's trying to better himself. There are those people that he's in charge of that interact with him in his life, and he does not allow them to suffer. He, he looks to see how he can be a blessing in their life, and he's a man who takes action. 
He doesn't let somebody else do his work. A man of God is a man of responsibility. He accepts and desires responsibility. That responsibility that was given to him when he was born, when God created him, the things that come as being a man, he's not offended by it. He's not frustrated by it. He doesn't shirk that responsibility. He accepts it. He grabs a hold of it with both hands, and he's willing to live up to the expectations that God has given him. And it goes further that he wants responsibility. He wants to be someone that other people look to to get things done, to be reliable, to give good wisdom, to interact with them in their life. A man of God accepts and desires responsibility. A man of God leads from the front. He is a leader, and he is visible, and he is seen. He doesn't send somebody else to do his work. He doesn't hide in the back. He shows leadership. He gets it done. He doesn't uh, make a, a big scene of it to try to inflate his pride, but he himself has this understanding that God gave him the opportunity to be a leader, to show people. There are people who are looking for someone to be an example. They need someone to help them to have courage. And a man of God, he's willing to be that person. A leader is always a difficult position. A leader is someone who is always going to be criticized. There's always a target on the back of a leader, but a man of God's not afraid of that because he leads through the example and the direction of Jesus Christ. The scriptures tell us that if we suffer as a Christian, that God should be praised by that. That if you as a leader, if you find yourself when you are making Christ-like, Christ-led decisions, that you feel the criticism of this world, you know, that should be glorious to you. That you are suffering, as Christ said, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. And that means that you're doing it the right way. So don't be afraid to be a leader. And that last aspect, that fourth aspect of a man, a man of God, is a man of expectation. All this he does, he endures, he sweats, he bleeds, he endures frustration, all of these things because he, he is convicted to the, to the fullness of his heart, to the very depth of his being. He is convicted that all of this is worth it. There is something good that I can expect if I follow through in my commitment to Jesus Christ. It's about hopeful expectation. None of these things mean life is going to be easy. None of these things mean that there's not going to be challenges. All of these things come together to, to fulfill the picture of Jesus Christ, that those of us who are Christians have promised to endeavor to be, that we should be like him. So let's go ahead and talk about our topic today. My topic, my title is Stay in Your Lane. There's this commercial, what was it? Uh, Oh, I forget what company it was from. Maybe it was it was a phone commercial, a cellular provider, and like you know, uh, and 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 the thing is, is 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 they have these different things, you know, that that someone who's just okay, right? There's that one where you got that doctor, right? Uh, guy's going in for surgery. He's talking to the nurse. He says, "Hey, what do you think about Doctor Smith?" And she's like, "Oh, he's an okay doctor, just okay." And then there's this other one, and this is the one with the stay in your lane that I always think of when I hear this phrase, where you got that tattoo artist, and he's like, "Hey, man, this is gonna look okay, just okay." And the guy who's getting the tattoo says, shouldn't you trace it out first? And the tattoo artist goes, stay in your lane, bro. Every time I hear stay in your lane, that cracks me up. But this is my title because I think this is an important concept. Stay in your lane, right? What is it that you should be focused on? What is it? Where is it that you should go? You know, what is your purpose? How do you, how do, you do that? And, and so I hope that I, I'm going to expand upon that uh, as we go through this podcast. I want to start, and I want to start reading uh, in the book of Job, right? And and I'm going to read Job, the 38th chapter, verses 1 through 5. For a little background, those of you who are listening, you probably know about the story of Job, right? Here's Job. 
He's this pretty uh, wealthy, well-off, successful man. He's got he's got cattle and sheep. He's got homes. He's got servants. He's got all these kids. Um, he's he's a well-off guy, and he's a and he's a man of God. And some some very difficult trials befall him. You know, Satan Satan interacts and destroys all of these things, and Job is left with with himself and his wife and and maybe his health, although he was covered with boils and all that sort of stuff. And uh, as he's sitting there, overwhelmed with all these things, he has three friends and later a fourth one joins them. And the book of Job is this back and forth of, of Job and these men trying to figure out why difficult things happen to Job. And in the end, we, we read this as there's been this lengthy conversation and God answers Job and these four men who are sitting there. And it says in Job 38, 1 through 5, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee and answer thou me. Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? You know, this is interesting because what what is it that God is saying to Job and his friends? He's saying, you presume to think too much of yourselves. You know, you explain to me which which one of you was there when I laid the foundations of the earth. You tell me how I did it. You know, who, who was the one who made the measure and decided how big it would be and what all would be in it? Do you even know? He says, who is this that darkens counsel? by words without knowledge. You know, God is telling him, you presume to think too much of yourself. I was the one who was able to do these things, not you, not you. Don't talk about these things. Don't try to, you know, he, he answers later, you know, he's, he's frustrated. The Lord is frustrated with Job's friends and he, and he calls them out that they were giving bad advice. They were, they were trying to figure out something they had no clue on. And he said, you know, you, you stay in your lane. You can't understand why I do the things that I do because I am above you. You know, I want to talk about this because as men, we are problem solvers. We're builders. We're fixers, right? We look and we can very quickly identify problems. And it's easy to see those problems. It's always easy. It's always easier to see the negatives, isn't it? Part of staying in your lane is understanding what you can do, what you should do, and what you're able to have effect on and how. You know, and this is something that I think is really important that we talk about. And, and I'm talking to men who are having struggles in their marriage, or even if I have some ladies who are listening, you know, you can take this out of the context of men and think about, because I, I'm going to talk about universal truths here, about how we stay in our lane. And, and, I'll, and, I'll, and I'll give you the punchline of all this right now. I, we need to remember that there is only one person that we can have an effect on. There is only one person that we can affect a change on. And who is that? It's ourselves. It's me. You will never be able to change somebody else. You can identify all of the problems and you can have all of the solutions and you could share those things perfectly and lovingly and all of that, but you can never change somebody else. They have to want to be changed. And so when we come to difficulties and troubles and all of these things in life, and we want to try to make things better, what should our focus be? I want to encourage you today to stay in your lane. Don't let everything else around you or the decisions of other people destroy you. One thing I've, I've talked about in sermons and in studies and in individual conversations with so many people is this concept, and I've probably talked about it here, spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity looks at your life looks at all the people and situations within it and realizes that your ability to make others change is not possible. 
I mean, spiritual maturity is so much more than that, but this is such a huge part of it that all you can do is work on yourself, stay in your own lane. You know, in my life, I have had four professions. Early on, when I was uh, 18, 19 years old, I worked as an EMT. I worked in an emergency room, very busy emergency room. I worked as a cop for many years. Anybody who's listened to this knows this. Now I'm a firefighter. And that fourth one, and I, I'm going to call this a profession, but it's not paid. I'm not, this isn't a job. This is a calling. This is something that, I, that I've been convicted of my responsibility to do is I'm a minister. All four of these deal with people with problems. In each one of these things, I have found, or I find myself, frustrated I get frustrated with people who are not able to accept the solutions, the best way, all of those things. You know, when I was working in the medical field, when I was working as a, in the emergency room, you know, we, we knew, I learned very quickly just by seeing and experiencing things. We knew how to solve so many things. As a cop, you know, I knew how to solve situations. I knew how to drag people out of, out of crime and out of poverty and all of those things. I knew how to do it, and, you know, as a firefighter. We know how to stop people from, from uh, having terrible fires in their house and all of these things. You know, as a minister, I know how to call people out of sin and how to, ha- and how to encourage people to have a better life. And I, throughout my life, have found myself, or I still find myself from time to time, frustrated that people are not willing or able to accept the solution, the best way, the advice, whatever it is. I remember when I first came to this understanding, it was while I was working in the ER, I came to this understanding, not everyone is able to be saved. I found that sometimes when people came in and they had these medical problems, sometimes they didn't want the solution. It was frightening, or uh, maybe they had a religious objection or whatever it was. And, I, and I'm not speaking negatively about it. It's just, the, it's just the fact. I found that sometimes the solution was still not able to take care of their issues. You know, people died despite all of the things we tried to do. As a cop, you know, I had to come to the understanding that no matter how many people we arrested— no matter how many gangs we cleaned up out of a neighborhood, no matter how many times these little children's eyes saw and experienced tragedy and misery and poverty and terror, that many of them were still going to grow up to live the same way. When I left the police department, one of the things that I really struggled with and I had to come to this understanding was that for all of the good that I did, and I did some tremendous good, I was involved in some amazing things where we took and we cleaned up neighborhoods and we took people who were, who were victimizing and terrorizing and doing all of these things, but I had to come to this understanding and be okay with the fact that crime was still going to happen. I have here in my notes to tell this story. So, there was a, um, when I was working on a kind of a neighborhood street uh, crimes kind of focused uh, squad where we would just go and we would focus on areas and kind of root out all the crime we could find, we, we found ourselves, my partner and I, there was this kind of ratty, small apartment complex in there that was always kind of the, uh, there was always trouble coming from there. We drove by there one day and um, there was somebody who had an electrical cord run from either another apartment across the parking lot or something like that. You know, they were stealing power from somebody. I think it was coming from a vacant uh, lot. And of course, we went and we unplugged that because we're so much better and you can't be stealing power or whatever it is, you know. And, and we begin this interaction with a family there. Dad and stepmom or girlfriend, uh, meth addicts. Uh, three sons there. One was 19 and he left pretty quickly afterwards. The other one was like 17 and the other one was maybe 13 years old. 
the action that we took in turning off their power and doing all this, we ended up having clearly a direct effect on the life of these uh, of these children, especially because meth addict dad and stepmom or girlfriend, whatever she was, uh, they weren't holding down jobs or anything like that. So we essentially took power. It was winter time, and and you know in the Phoenix metro area, it uh, it gets cold in the winter. I mean, it's obviously not snowing or things like that, but you know, 35, 40 degrees is, is cold. You know, we had this interaction with this family. Self-righteously, we unplugged it. We gave a stern warning and, and, you know, all those things that the cops do, you know. And a few days later, we were driving down the road and up in front of us, there was someone on a bike and committed a couple of traffic violations looking kind of suspicious. And so we went up and tried to stop them and did. And it turns out it was this little 13, 12 or 13 year old kid from this house. And he had been throwing out lighters and stuff out of his pocket. And, uh, you know, as I talked to him and everything, he was a goofy-looking kid. He had he had uh, these giant Coke bottle glasses, thick glasses. And, you know, uh, with the magnification or with the, 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 um, the glasses so thick that, you know, the, as you look through the eyes, their eyes are, are big, magnified. It makes them look goofy. And this kid had some hearing problems, so he had these big hearing aids on there. And he was dirty and all that, you know, and... Uh, I didn't smell cigarettes or drugs or anything like that on him. I asked him why he was throwing out those lighters. Why do you have those lighters and why aren't you at school? And he says, well, I have those lighters to light candles at my house because we don't have lights. And I'm not at school because uh, I'm not taking showers right now because we don't have any electricity and the water's freezing cold and the water heater doesn't make it warm. And, you know, I I realized that (laughs) that this was a result of my interaction with this young guy. And uh, my heart was touched, I felt truly bad about about it. Not that we did something wrong, because what, what that father was doing was, was incorrect. And so I began, my partner and I began this, this uh, effort of working with this young guy and with his brother who was 17. And we took, uh, we took this little guy to the store, and um, my partner and I both opened up our wallets, and we bought him clothes and shoes, and, and went and kind of put together a plan of how to help these young guys be successful. And we put a lot of time and money uh, into these young men, uh, not department money. We put it out of our own pocket, and I didn't do it, and my partner didn't do it. We didn't do it, so anybody would would ever pat us on the back. It was the right thing to do. And I truly became invested in both of these young men, especially this little guy who uh, I just felt terrible for. And I uh, checked in with them frequently and really felt like we were making some real progress. Began going to school. They were showing me their grades. They were doing really well. Uh, around the department, you know, guys would interact with them, and they began calling them my son. And uh, I felt I felt pretty good about it, having some effect, some good effect. And I was able to show this love of Christ in them. Well, one day I got a phone call. Hey, Adam, your little son here. We we caught him stealing the bait car. Yeah, so we have these cars, and you've probably seen the videos where it's uh, these cars that they stick out with the intention of getting them stolen. And inside of them, they have cameras and audio and the ability to shut it off remotely. And they stick it there until someone gets in it to steal it. And then they uh, turn it off and then you can arrest them for stealing a car. And sure enough, this little guy who I'd spent so much, so much time and effort and money and, and all of that into trying to make his life better, he was, uh, I don't know, was he playing me? Maybe, I don't know, but the, he was arrested for being in a bait car. And then a very short time later, he was arrested again for stabbing somebody. Tell you what, it was a real blow to me because I felt like, and I remember kind of thinking this to the Lord. I'm like, you know, Lord, I'm I'm trying to do all this good. And I look at this kid in this terrible situation, and I've done all of these things to help him and to show him how to go up. And yet 
this is what he's become. And today, you know, it's been probably 10 years since then. I have no clue. I haven't heard anything about him. I don't know if this young guy's alive or dead or in jail or whatever it is. You know, I don't know. But that was something I had to to really begin to uh, to examine this. That even though I may have all the right answers, I have all the right things that I can encourage someone to do. I can set them up. I can do all of that. I can give them everything to make them successful. I can't change somebody. And that was a you know that was a tough situation as I kind of came to that understanding with that young little guy. You know, today I'm a firefighter, and, and you know, I, I have to come to that same realization from a slightly different point of view. You know, despite all these advances in fire technology and building construction and vehicle safety and development and all these things that we try to do to encourage people to be safer, be all that, you know, houses are still burning down. People will still violently die in car accidents. You know, firefighters still get cancer and die. But what is my responsibility in all of these things? Because it was possible that this young man was going to reoffend, was going to decide that he was too invested in a life of poverty, he didn't know anything better. Was it was it good? Was it right? Should I have just not wasted my time? No. No, because because Christ calls me to stay in my lane and what is it? You know that we do good to all men. You find that in Galatians. That we look for opportunities to do good, that we give good wisdom, that we give all this, you know, good direction, that we follow through with our commitments. You know, and I made a commitment when I became a police officer. I made a commitment when I began working in the emergency room. I made a commitment as a firefighter that I was going to look to do good, to be sacrificial to those people who were around me, even if and especially if they never change. And that's something that is really difficult. That's something that's hard. It takes a lot of spiritual maturity to understand that. But it's something that's really important. And, and, and for those of you who might be listening to this who are having some struggles in your marriages or things like that, this is important that you think about. And I'm going to get to some scriptures here shortly that I want to expound upon that. But you know, I only talked about three of those professions. This fourth one as a minister is probably the most difficult for me. I came to this understanding as a minister. You know, if you read Ezekiel in the 33rd chapter, the Lord calls Ezekiel and he says, I've set you to be a watchman. And then he gives this explanation. He says, if this watchman, if he's there in this country and he sees that there's these hordes of armies that are coming and they're looking to destroy and all that sort of stuff, if this man who's on watch doesn't blow a trumpet and warn the people so they're ready for the battle, if he instead says, ah, these people deserve it, it's not worth my time, I'm just going to forget about it, the Lord says, Ezekiel, that watchman is guilty of their blood. It's as if he killed them, said, Ezekiel, your job is to warn the people, is to be the watchman. But he didn't tell Ezekiel that his job was to drag people out of the way of danger, but it was to warn them. And that was Ezekiel's lane that he had to stay in. There are so many things in life that will sway us if we allow it. We can get weary and overwhelmed and frustrated and all of these things. You know, I'm sure that many of you have had this in your marriage where you're like, there's nothing that I can do. It's just, I can't make anything better. I just want to give up. I just want to quit. But that's not your lane. We didn't make any commitment with the intention of throwing it away. We made a commitment with the intention of going forward. I want you to think about this. Those of you who might be having issues in your marriage, who are feeling overwhelmed and thinking, you know what, I ought to just give this up. Most of you in your wedding vows that I believe with my whole heart God heard and recognized and is going to hold you to, you said better or worse. It's always easier to stick with something when it's better. The real challenge of a man is when it's worse. Your lane is to stick with something in better, but especially in worse. In the Book of Moroni, in the Book of Mormon, 
Now, some of you who are listening to this might believe in the Book of Mormon. Some of you might not. If you don't believe in the Book of Mormon, I'm just going to give, I think it's been a while since I gave this disclaimer, is, is I'm not asking you to agree with it to be Holy Scripture. If you don't think the Book of Mormon is valid, I'm going to tell you it doesn't include all the things that you kind of traditionally think about with some of the wackiness of Mormonism. You don't find any, any of that in the Book of Mormon. But if you don't want to consider it to be Scripture, I'm all right with that. If nothing else, maybe consider it to be good wisdom and good advice. And this is good wisdom and good advice right here that I'm going to read you. This is in Mormon chapter 9, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. I'm sorry, I said Mormon, I mean Moroni. Moroni chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. And this is where a man named Mormon is writing a letter to his son, Moroni, and telling him about this situation that's going on. This this entire land is, is enveloped in battle and it's warfare, and people are dying all over the place. And so this is what he says, this man Mormon, to his son. My beloved son, I write to you again that you might know that I am yet alive. But I write to you something which is grievous. For behold, I've had a sore battle with the Lamanites in which we did not conquer. And Archantius has fallen by the sword, and also Lurum and Emron. Yea, and we've lost a great number of our choice men. And now behold, my son, I fear lest the Lamanites shall destroy this people, for they do not repent, and Satan stirreth them up continually to anger one with another. Behold, I'm laboring with them continually, and I speak the word of God with sharpness, and they tremble and anger at me. And when I use no sharpness, they harden their hearts against it. Wherefore, I fear lest the Spirit of the Lord has ceased striving with them, for they so exceedingly do anger that it seemeth to me that they have no fear of death, and they've lost their love one towards another, and they thirst after blood and revenge continually. And now, my beloved son, notwithstanding their hardness, let us labor diligently. For if we should cease to labor, we should be brought under condemnation. For we have a labor to perform while in this tabernacle of clay, that we may conquer the enemy of all righteousness and rest our souls in the kingdom of God. You know, this is a really interesting reading because, and I'm not talking about any specific situation, but I know that marriage is oftentimes a challenge, and I know a lot of my listeners have some struggles in their marriage. So I want you to think about this, okay? Here he is, his his dad, Moroni's dad, Mormon, is talking about a battle where, where you have an army coming and trying to destroy his army. And within his army, there are these people who they don't even have any love for anybody anymore. They're so angry and frustrated. And 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 Mormon, you know, he's a minister and he says, I'm, I'm telling him, listen, listen, we can't live like this. You can't live with this anger and all of that. You've got to change. We can't do that. Even if you die, you can't die like this. We have to do it better. And his and his men, his soldiers, they were angry. They get angry about it. I don't want to hear what you have to say. And Mormon, as a man, he's looking at this. And, and he's talking about what it would be natural for a man to think. Why do I even make this effort? They are not changing. They're still angry. I'm telling them that if you die like this, that you are going to be condemned by God for it. You can't do these things. And they're still angry. And they tell me to shut up, and they don't want to hear it. And as a man, he's thinking about all these things. Why do I even do this? They don't care. And yet he comes to this understanding, and he encourages his son. And he says... Even though they are hard, even though they don't want to listen, he says, let us continue to labor diligently. We have to continue doing what we promised we would do. And he says, for if we cease to labor, if we stop doing our work, then we are brought under condemnation because we have a labor to perform. This is something I want you to think about. 
all of you men who, whatever the challenge is in your life, you feel overwhelmed and frustrated. And if it's having to do with somebody else, I get it. I get it. I got an awesome marriage. I don't know what marital struggles are. But I, I've experienced things, and I've already told you about these four professions, where I see people who do things and make decisions, and they're destroying themselves, and I say, and I do, and I try to do all of the interventions and all of these things, and yet they still choose to destroy themselves or to make bad decisions. And I just want to throw my hands up and say, I don't even know why. You're not worth my time. I want to walk away. But notwithstanding their hardness, let us labor diligently. For if we cease to labor we will be brought under condemnation. You know, if you look in the, in the uh, Old Testament, in the, in the prophets, you, there's this book of Hosea, H-O-S-E-A, Hosea. And it's a really, I mean, I've read it a time or two. I, it's, it's, it's prophetic. It's telling the, the house of Israel because they have not chosen to follow after God, all of these terrible things that are going to happen. And one of these things that God does is, is he, he does, he sets examples. And so for, to help to illustrate what it is that he's talking about. And so he tells Hosea, he says, hey, I want you to go and marry this lady named Gomer, which what a beautiful name, by the way. My wife and I really swung and missed with naming our our daughter. We should have used Gomer. Anyway, he says, I want you to go marry Gomer. Uh, and now I'm under the impression that Gomer was probably relatively attractive. I don't I don't think it was that God was like, hey, go marry this disgusting heifer. He, he asked Jose, he says, I want you to go marry Gomer. But here's this issue. Gomer is a whore. And uh, <clears throat> I'm under the assumption that when Hosea married Gomer, that she had probably put those things away, that she probably wasn't actively doing it. And in the first chapter, you see that Gomer and Hosea have a couple of children, and and God uh, uses her as an example. But at some point, Gomer, she gives in to what her her heart is, and she goes and she commits adultery. She, she runs back into that previous lifestyle. So then you run into chapter 3, verse 1. And it says, Then the Lord said unto me, I'm sorry, this is Hosea chapter 3, verse 1. Then the Lord said unto me, Go yet, love a woman beloved of her friend, yet an adulteress, according to the love of the Lord towards the children of Israel, who took other gods and loved flagons of wine. Well, that's a really weird way of reading it. Basically, the Lord says to Hosea, I want you to go, and I want you to still love and take back and love Gomer, even though she's an adulteress, even though she cheated on you, even though she left. He says, I want you to go and take her. And he says, I want you to remember why. He says, this is the example, according to the love of the Lord, who has towards the children of Israel, who went and took other gods and worshiped other gods and gave themselves over to, to wild parties of drinking and worshiping and all those other things of other gods. You know, God's making this example. He says, you know, you still have to love her. You still have to love her. It's hard. And he says, I still love Israel. Even though Israel, you know, went worshiping other gods. And, and what are some of the things that, the, that Israel did in worshiping these other gods? You know, they burned their children as sacrifices to these other gods. I mean, they did these horrific things. And yet the Lord still loved them and made efforts to try to, to, to do well for them. I want you to think about this, those of you who are having some struggles in your marriage. And we can look and we can lay out all sorts of things with that other person that frustrate us and upset us and that we wish was different and all of those things, right, which cause us frustrations. But I want you to remember this, that you're commanded to love them. That is your lane. 
one of these troubles that we get into, and all of us have heard it, you've seen it, you've talked to somebody about it, maybe, you know, someone who thinks they can change somebody else. A woman gets into a relationship, she's going to marry this guy, she's, he's going to change. And you know, and I always tell people, when I'm counseling with them for marriage, I say this to them, you know, what you need to understand is, and what I want you to be fully convicted of in your heart is that you can love this person exactly how they are right this moment for the rest of their life. If there is something that right now you say, I cannot accept until they change, you cannot marry them. Because you have to enter into this relationship looking at this person and loving them if they never do anything different. It drives me crazy when somebody chews with their mouth open. When I was a kid, I got spanked for it every time. I can hear somebody chewing with their mouth open from the other side of the room. It drives me nuts. You know, so think about this. And it's like, could I still love my wife for the rest of my life if for the rest of my life she chewed with her mouth open? It's like a silly example, but this is what we're talking about. Hosea was commanded to love his wife. And it didn't matter that she had gone and cheated and done all these things. He was commanded to love her. And the example was drawn right back because Christ loves you despite. Despite all the things that you do, Christ still loves you. I want to talk here real quick about 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You probably know it. It's this whole chapter about charity, right? Love, this pure love of Christ. And this is, and I'm not going to read anything from it. You, I'm, I encourage you to go back and read it. But this entire chapter, it's talking about a manner of living, of thinking. It's a manner of the heart, which is less about the person receiving the charity. The chapter is not about somebody being worthy of love. It's about you and about the manner of your heart and how you see others and how you can love others. Nowhere in it does it say, if somebody does X, then you give them charity. It tells us other things about how charity, about the pure love of Christ, how Jesus Christ is kind. He doesn't throw darts at people. He doesn't get angry because someone doesn't change or hasn't lived up to his expectation. He loves thinking no evil. How many times in your life have you put together, I do this sometimes, I make this assumption of what somebody else is thinking or feeling or doing, right? I put together, there's a whole soap opera going on in my head of this other person and what they must think or do or the reasons why they said this or that. All of us have done it. And I wonder, are we really having charity? Are we thinking evil? You know, I, 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 one of these things I want to draw into this is, is it comes to forgiveness. This is one of the hardest things, isn't it? One issue is that we have trouble forgiving. I've always been interested, and I've gotten into these conversations with people before when they say, I can forgive, but I can't forget. And this is a reality of, of humanity. And, you know, I, I truly believe that, you know, if somebody kills my wife, I, I'm clearly not going to forget, have it wiped out of my mind that that situation ever happened, right? I'm never going to forget that. I do believe that with Christ working in me and through me, that that memory, that when I allow forgiveness to reign in that offense— that though I won't forget that situation, it won't bring up the anger and the frustration and the malice and the want for revenge and all of that sort of thing. So often when people say, I can forgive, but I can't forget, it, what it means is every time that memory comes up or when somebody sins again in that similar manner against you, it brings up all these frustrations and angers and all that sort of stuff again. But that is not Christ. 
Forgiveness means that the offense has been handled and taken away, not to be brought up again. And we read this in Micah in the seventh chapter in the 18th and 19th verse. It says, Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities, and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. When we talk about forgiveness, especially in relationships, we must think of it like Christ. When we are forgiven for some sin, think about some terrible thing that you were in and you felt convicted of it and you went in prayer to the Lord and you begged for forgiveness. This is not who I am. Forgive me for it. Don't don't hold this against me. This isn't what I promised. Would you please not remember this anymore? Will the blood of Christ cover this sin? When we're forgiven for some sin, is it remembered by Christ? Can you accept that Christ would forgive your sins only to bring those things up again when you stand before the Father to be judged? No. This scripture says that he'll cast those things in the depths of the sea. The Mariana Trench is almost seven miles deep. If you throw a rock into the bottom of it, can you ever find that rock and bring it up again? No. Spiritual maturity, right? It's hard to get to, but it's attainable through Christ. And staying in your lane is that you forgive somebody, even if that person who hurt you never asks for your forgiveness. Forgiveness is about you. That's your lane. Those of you who are struggling in your marriage, I want you to examine how is your forgiveness? How's it doing? If we read in 1 Peter chapter 3, we'll read verses 1 through 4. Likewise, you wives, I'm going to time out here because uh, he's, he's making this statement about wives and husbands, but I'm going to talk about this in terms of all of us, okay? So don't, don't get caught up on this. I'm not saying it doesn't matter, but don't get caught up when it says, likewise, you wives and husbands, because there's, there's an overall message here in these four verses. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 4. Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they might without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of the plating of hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart, in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and a quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price." So he talks about these things, and he's, he's talking. He says, there are women who are in this church. There are women who are believers whose husbands are not. They don't believe. They're not Christians. They're not converted. And Peter says, listen, you still need to care for and, and be one with those wives, even though they're not believers. But he says, listen, this is why, because without you saying anything— says your conversation. Now, you know, I realize those of you who use newer versions of the Bible, it's not going to say conversation, but I, I use the King James Version of the Bible. But one thing I do is I look up and I see what the original Greek word was. That word conversation is a manner of living. It's a manner of living. So it says that those men, those husbands who are not part of, of the believers in Christ, they might see your manner of living and be won over by it. It says, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, while they, while they see you not giving into the excesses of this world and frustration and anger and, and all these things that go on in the world because you are, are honoring God, they see those things. They see your lifestyle, and it can change their lives. This is how we affect other people. It's not in those things that we say or sitting down and talking to someone saying, you must change and giving ultimatums and all that sort of stuff. No. 
we can be an influence in the lives of others when we when we live by the example of Jesus Christ. It says, who's adorning, let it not be that outward adorning, the plating of hair and all that stuff. It's not, not putting on a show. It's not just putting on a show. It's what is in verse 4, the hidden man of the heart, that which comes without from, from inside deep of you. The things that you say, the things that you do, how you are when nobody's watching, those things, it radiates from you. When you're convicted and you live in a Christ-like manner, it radiates from you. And just like heat radiates, you know, if I light a fire, it ends up that, that the heat from it, it radiates outward and it fills an entire room. This is one of the most significant aspects of spiritual maturity. You're only able to change yourself, but those things that you do in yourself can have an effect on others. There's no point, though, in imagining something different. There are no magic words. There's nothing that you can do which will just make somebody change. You are not so amazing that you can just cause someone to change, that they have to make that change. So what is your role? As an EMT working in the ER, as a cop, as a fireman, as a minister— I have to make the decision that I will do everything in my power. I will always fulfill my responsibility. It doesn't matter what the outcome in someone else's life is. I will do the very best. I will fulfill it. I will go all the way. I will finish something out. If your marriage is in trouble, do not let it fail on your account. Never give up. You know, as a cop, I look to do everything I had committed to do, everything I was able to do to have an effect on the course of a community for good. And it didn't always change a community, but I committed myself. This is what I will do. You know, lastly, I want to talk about commitment. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 4 and 5. When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. It's better that thou shouldst not vow than that thou shouldst vow and not pay. So he says, when you make a promise to God, do not dare to not follow through with it, because God doesn't have any pleasure in fools. A fool is someone who just opens his mouth and just says something. He says, don't do that. It's better that you wouldn't make a promise than to make a promise and not follow through. You know, this is manhood. This is Christianity. This is your marriage. This is all of these things. In Scripture, I see two vows or two covenants we make in our life, marriage and baptism. And a man of God fulfills his word. It has nothing to do with the outside circumstances. How many stories have we heard of soldiers who are willing to die in some hopeless battle, but they did it because they made a commitment to a cause? How we handle these types of struggles speaks to our own morality, to the core of who we are. A man of God fulfills his word when it's easy and especially when it's hard. That is your lane. You can't change anyone else, but do the work on you. How can I handle this situation better? How can I love better? How can I handle frustration or loneliness or disappointment in the same way that Christ did? If that other person never changes a single thing, is it able to destroy me? Does it change me? Am I only willing to try to work on my marriage if that other person is also willing to work on it? These are difficult things. And, uh, and I know that, that you know when I talk about things like this, I know it's a struggle. It's always easier to talk than it is to work than it is to act. But I believe fully with my whole heart in a God who is able to help us in all of these struggles of life. And remember, we are men of expectation. It's worth it. It's worth it to follow through. 
if you've ever seen that movie Fireproof, there's a Christian movie Fireproof, and it's talking about uh, a husband and a wife whose marriage is just in absolute shambles. And this husband, he's a firefighter. His his work, you know, he's fully dedicated to work. His home life is a mess. He's struggling with pornography, uh, financial things. His wife and he a terrible relationship and all that. And at some point, he makes this decision, you know, that that he's going to work on his marriage because he sees it's failing and. And he begins this challenge. It's a love dare. And, you know, it's this book of all these things for, I think it's 40 days. You do something every day to try to improve yourself and to do something for someone else. And over the course of this movie, you know, eventually it has an effect. And where their marriage was on the brink of failure, they come back together. And she asks him, she says, she sees this book and she says, this is a 40-day thing. She says, how long have you been doing it? And I don't remember exactly what he said, but maybe it was like 90 days, something like that. He says, I've been doing it for 90 days. She goes, well, it's only a 40-day challenge. And he said, you know, I just wasn't willing to give up. This is Christ-like man. So I want you to think about these things and arise from the dust and be men.